0: Well, hey, Exponential, welcome today to our worship experience, and I'm on vacation right now, although I may actually be in the back of the room as, uh, as we're doing this, but I just wanted to introduce today's guest speaker to you. His name is Brian Miller. Brian is somebody I worked with when I was down at the uh, Chambersburg First Church of God, which is now the Grand Point uh, Community Church, and Brian was one of my interns when I first got started there, and he has just done so many incredible things through the years. He's become a great man of God, and he's actually spoken here before. He's led worship here before, so some of you are familiar with him, but we just wanted to invite Brian back to be a part of this parable series, and so why don't you give a big exponential welcome to Brian Miller right now as he comes out to share God's Word. Welcome, Brian. Hey, everybody. Well, that was a very nice introduction from your pastor. If I could have a copy of that that I could play anytime that I enter a room, so people know that I'm a a great man of God, I'd appreciate that. So I'll, I'm going to ask your pastor about that later. But it is my honor to be here amongst you, Exponential Church, um, to be here with you in person and for those who are checking in online. I'm excited that you're online as well. If you can, write in the chat. Let me know that you're here. Let me know. And all of those online, where you are chatting from, where you're watching from, uh, as we continue our series, Parables. And again, Exponential Church is actually very special to me. Um, not just because of your pastor, but largely because of it, Um, but also because I have, believe it or not, been in your services quite a bit over the years. Uh, As Pastor Gilbert was saying, uh, you know, I've preached here a couple times, I've led worship a couple times, I've gotten to know some of you, so I, I can look out. Uh, Even with your masks on, I can still recognize a couple of the people out there that I've talked to before, that I've prayed with, that I've served with up here on this stage. Uh, And believe it or not, I was at your very first service of Exponential Church. I was there for the beginning of it. So exciting stuff. I follow you guys online. I see what you're doing in the community of Harrisburg. um, And it's just incredible to watch what God is doing in this place. So today we are continuing our series about parables. Have you guys been enjoying this series? Oh, okay. Oh, Chat, have you been enjoying the series online? They're saying yes, I can just sense it. I can sense it. They're having a great time, just like you guys are. I hope you are, because it, it's really important, not just as, as we've talked through these parables, to kind of get the moral, quote-unquote, of the story, but also to dive deeper into what these parables are actually mean. I love the byline for this series. It says, "Jesus often told stories to illustrate a point, but he said only those who truly listen could understand them." And that really is the truth. It's not just enough to read through these stories and, you know, I can learn how to be a better person in X, Y, and Z way, which is important, but we have to dig a little bit deeper, right? We have to really see what Jesus was talking about in these stories, what the message that he was trying to get across to the people was. And today we're going to talk about the parable of the prodigal son. And the message this morning uh, really has been sourced quite a bit from a book that has been very, very uh, impactful to me in my life. It's called Prodigal God by Tim Keller. So if you find this uh, message to really kind of pique your interest about this story, you want to dive even deeper into it because we're not going to get to all of it uh, today, I'd encourage you to check out that book as well. But what's interesting about this story, and it's going to be in Luke 15, uh, we're going to go through a 11 through 32, so you can feel free to open up your Bibles to Luke 15, open up your apps, get there online. I believe if you click over in the tab, there's a Bible tab. You can actually look right there and see, and you'll see the, the screens uh, will have the, the um, verses as well. But we're going to be talking about the prodigal son. Now, what's really interesting, just to start this off, is to talk about the name for this parable. It's called the prodigal son. Historically, it has been called the prodigal son. But what's interesting is that this story is really about two sons. It's about two sons. They're two. And the way that they interact with the father shows us a picture of how we often will interact with our heavenly father. And if we don't compare and contrast the older and the younger brother in this story, it becomes just one of these kind of moral stories, Right? of how to be a good person. That's a good thing, but I think Jesus is getting at something deeper for us. In fact, I want to challenge you this morning. It's a big challenge, so bear with me here. I want to challenge you that this parable is one of the most radical in all of the Bible. The, maybe the most radical in all the Bible. It's not just because I got this week. Okay, I really believe that. I really believe that. In fact, what Jesus is saying in this parable, just to set it up, is that every human idea of how to connect to God is wrong. Every religion, every secular thought, every way of finding meaning in life that is human-made is wrong. Wrong. And he's going to describe how it's wrong in this parable. So let's start off with just going through the story itself. Now, what's really important here is that we read this story and provide context to what jesus is saying so for us as we read through the bible you know we're not reading it as those first century jews in the new testament who would have been the ones sitting there listening to jesus speak these things so for us we get to miss a lot of the subtle clues that jesus is putting into these parables into these stories so it's important for us to kind of take it i think verse by verse look at some of the interesting little bits because it really shows us how we should really view our Heavenly Father. So let's go ahead together. We're going to start at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. Remember, two sons. This is about two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, first off, you read that and you think, okay, well, you know, he's he's trying to get this the estate or his inheritance. He's trying to get a little bit early. I can see how, you know, people might be a little muffled by that. But really, you have to understand, this was an appalling statement to people in the first century, these first century Jews. Because to say this to the head of the family, to the patriarch of the family, would have essentially meant, I want you dead. Remember, he didn't get his inheritance until the father's dead. The father actually had to go through and cut up his belongings, his land, the things that he owned, and sell them off to give him his inheritance. So here we have the son saying, I don't really care about you. The readers would have been appalled by this. He wanted what the father had, not the father. Scholars say that the father would would have been expected to throw him out. He wouldn't have been accepted to give him these things. Certainly, he would have said, go from me. That would have been the expected thing to do. But what happened? We read, so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Incredible. He agreed to it. He was agreeing to lose his land. He's agreeing to tear his life apart. What we need to understand here is that the father is enduring one of the worst things a person can endure in this moment. This is just the very first verse. He's enduring rejected love. For those of you who have children, think about what it would feel like for your child to come up to you and say, "Uh, I don't want anything about you. I just want your things. I want what's due for me. That hurt, right? Even if you don't have kids, I think for all of us, we've all had those moments of rejected love where, you know, we ask somebody out and they say no to us. How does that feel, right? Now, Pastor Gilbert, he's never gone through that. He's a good-looking guy. He's, you know, he's a studly guy. Pastor Bill, probably not. But for the rest of us, a little on the uglier side, people, we've been there, right? I've been there. That hurts. And what do we try to do in those moments? Think about it. What do you try to do when you have that feeling of rejected love? You push people away, don't you? You try to say, ah, I didn't really care about you. We do that sometimes even with our family members who don't want to be a part of, of our lives anymore. We try to push them away. We say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. That's not what the father did here. What did the father do? He endured it. He endured it and he gave the son what he asked for. So what happens to the son? Well, he runs off and he does his own thing. A few days later, verse 13, uh, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money with wild Living, Thankfully, none of us have done that before, right? Okay, you're with me. Perfect people here, aloud. Okay, that's it. Uh, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over his land. Things were getting bad. Verse 15, he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Things were really bad really bad, right? When you're not looking at the pigs and thinking about bacon, but instead looking at their food, those are some rough times, y'all, okay? Things were getting bad for him, so he decided he's going to come up with a plan, okay? He's going to come up with a plan to make things right. He finally came to his senses in verse 17. He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. So here's his plan. I will go home To my father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now, this is an important thing to note. He says, Take me on as a hired servant, okay? That's a very specific type of employment in those days. What he was saying was not, I'm going to come back and ask for forgiveness and just take me back as your son. He knew that that wasn't, he couldn't do that. It just didn't happen in those days. Instead, if you were trying to make restitution for something that you did wrong in your community, you're ostracized like he would have been, you had to come back and work your way back into the good graces of your family. And that was his plan. He said, I want to be a hired servant. I wanted to go in and get the training from the father's people, have some type of a skill, work my way back into his good graces. That is my plan, to earn... The father's love. And so he does. He goes back and he tries to implement his plan. But something happens. It doesn't work out the way that he thought in verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. Now, this is an important thing to note as well. For a father, a patriarch, he was clearly a wealthy um, family, the head of the family, so he would have had lots of status. For him to run to somebody was almost for him to humiliate himself. In that day and age, in that culture, men didn't run. Children ran. Women ran. And in fact, commentators, if you read into this, would say that they would have seen this as almost a motherly act from the father. to. He would have to pick up his robe and run to the son. Again, people reading this and listening to this at that time would have been like, wait, what? He did that? But he did it. He ran to the son, and the father kissed him and embraced him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father wasn't having anything to do with his plan. The father had a different plan. Verse 22, he says this. The father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he was found. So the party began. began. Notice there, he's saying, this is my son, not my hired servant, not somebody who has to work his way back into my good graces. In fact, he's even giving him his, the things that he owns. Again, he gives him the finest robe. Who would have the finest robe in the house? The Father. He lavishes him with love. He says, I'm not going to wait for you to make things right, to clean things up. You aren't going to earn your way back. You'll be accepted. Now, for many of us, that could have been the sermon, Right? And that's a pretty good sermon, I think. You know, not toot my own horn, but pretty good. Okay. Not Pastor Gilbert's standards, but it's pretty good. Oh, geez. Whoa. <laughs> can't hear that in the chat. They're, they're cheering Pastor Gilbert out here. Um, no, that's a good sermon. I mean, that's a good, you know, kind of feel-good message, right? That could have probably been made into one of those lifetime channel stories, right, um, that your, your wife or significant other kind of tricks you into watching. Um, It could have been one of those. And for most people, I think, that are reading this story, that's kind of where they stop, right? And it's a beautiful thing. It's a great message. But the parable's not over. The parable's not over. And in fact, I think we're going to get to the really revolutionary stuff next. So listen closely. You would think that the older brother would be pretty happy to see his younger brother back. This meant a restitution of his family. The family's getting back together. Everything's going great. Well... Not so much. Look at verse 25 through 27. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. Now, I don't know if you have siblings. um, You may have guessed what the reaction would have been to the younger son, son getting what the older son may have wanted, right? Let's look at what happens in verse 28. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. Now, it's interesting here to stop, okay? I have two young boys, all right? I have one that uh, he's five, and he, for his younger brother, who's two, um, I could give him any toy in, in the house, the older son, right? And I could say, this is, we have toys from like years ago. You know how it is. You give him toys, to play with it for like a week, and then it's, you're done. There's no more playing with that toy. I'll give him that toy from maybe a year ago. He'll say, I want nothing to do with it, right? He'll say, I, you know, whatever, throw it away. Maybe he'll throw it in the trash. He's done that plenty of times. Um, but the moment that I give that same toy to the younger son, what happens? Uh, yes. He wants it, and he wants it bad. And he's willing to fight for it, and usually he does. And that's my, that's my life. Um, <laughs> we're hoping it gets better. We really are. Please, Lord. Uh, so you can understand that. And actually, I think as, as I've read this story in the past, it's kind of where I went. Okay, he's just kind of jealous of what he gets. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Why is he upset? Well, we read on. The father came out and begged him to come in. And he replied, all these years... I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Once again, here, to understand the context of what's happening, he is publicly humiliating his father. They're at a party. Now, he's outside the party, but the community would have known that he wasn't in the party with everyone else, right? That is publicly shaming the father. And then to go further, he says, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a thing you told me to. You can hear the anger in his voice. We read on in 30. He even gets, I think, a little vulgar with it. He says, yet when this son of yours, this son of yours. If you're in a big family, you've probably heard something like that before. Uh, This son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fattened calf. I mean, can you hear the anger in his voice, right? And, and just to take it one step further, to understand what it meant to kill the fattened calf, that was the prized possession of the family. That only happened in extremely rare circumstances. And they were doing it for this younger son who didn't deserve it. What would the father do? What should the father have done in this case? Well, just like the younger son, he had every right to banish the older son in this situation. He probably should have, given the cultural um, expectations of the time. He should have kicked him out and been done with him. That's what the listeners would have expected him to do. But what happens is revolutionary. Instead, his father said to him, verse 31, Look, dear son. That can also be translated in the original language as my child. It's an incredibly personal, gentle word to use. After being humiliated, after being called out, spoken to in a way that someone should have never spoken to their father, he says, look, my dear son, you've always stayed with me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. He gives him the same grace and love as the younger brother. So what is Jesus telling us in this story? And by the way, I I love also that this story is really a cliffhanger. It ends. We don't know what happens. Does he go back in? I don't know. Check back next week. Maybe he does. We don't get the conclusion here. We actually have no idea whether he does or not, and I think that might be part of the point. But what Jesus is telling us here about this story is that he's showing us three radical new ways of viewing our father and our relationship to him. He shows us a radical view first of our heavenly father. Oftentimes, many of us, we struggle with this idea that God is our father, don't we? Maybe because you've had a negative experience with your own father, somebody else's father. Just the idea of, um, you know, the patriarchy, if I can use that word, or the father figures who are, um, you know, overly punishing, judgmental, expect so much of you. And we take that view of our fathers and earthly fathers and we transplant it to our view of God. The original hearers would have done this as well. Remember, this father should have acted in very different ways than he was in this story. And I believe what Jesus is telling us through this story is this. He says, Jesus is telling us that the listeners at this time, he's telling them and he's telling all of us that I'm sorry that you may have had bad father figures in your life. Maybe you still do. But that's not what your heavenly father is like. It's not. We see that in this story, in this example. What is he like in the face of criticism? He's suffering. He's suffering. What is he like in the face of somebody coming back after doing something terrible? He's forgiving. He's longing. He's a father that runs to you. That's our radical view of our father. second point is that Jesus shows us a radical view of sin See, in the first part of the story, we get a very traditional view of sin, don't we? And I think that's why, oftentimes, that's only really the part that we talk about, really. Because we see a story that kind of makes sense to us. And in a way, it's kind of a moral story. We have a younger brother who was obviously wrong. He did some bad things. We're not going to say that they're good things. They're clearly bad things. He made the right step to come back. He repented of the things that was on his list, right? Right? All the sins that he had, he he finally went down, he repented of them. That's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's more to this story. Remember, we have two sons, both of which need to repent. We have one son who needs to repent of his bad deeds. We have another son that needs to repent of his good deeds. Do you hear that? We have one son, and it's clear, did some bad stuff. We have another son who did some good things for bad reasons. That's the radical view of sin that separates what we believe as Christians than any other worldview. See, both sons, this is an important note, both sons use the father to get what they really love. What did they really want? What did the younger son want? He wanted his freedom. He wanted to be able to go out and live his own life the way that he wanted to. There's many of those people like that in our society today. We can even say that's sort of a secular worldview. Just do you, right? Do the things that make you happy. He goes out, he finds out, that ain't going to work. But then we also have the older son who says, look in verse 1529 again. does he say that he says he says all these years i've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to and in all that time you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends did he want the father or did he want the things the father could give him he had the father right he had him he had everything that he needed in fact we see that he said in uh in verse 31 Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. That wasn't enough. That wasn't enough. And he needed to repent too. It's interesting to look back at the beginning of this story and, um, in verse 1 and 2 because Jesus was actually giving this story to two groups of people. And I believe those two groups of people actually fit into this story. In verse 1, we read, The tax collectors and notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Tax collectors and notorious sinners. Younger brother. Right? People who are just going out doing their thing. Pagans in many cases, right? Older brother. Pharisees. Teachers of religious law. That were complaining that he was associating with sinful people. Why would they complain? He didn't deserve it. I do. Do you see the sin there? It's the sin of wanting the Father's things and not the Father. Jesus is saying in this parable that both groups, both groups of people, the Pharisees living by their own righteousness, The tax collectors doing whatever they want to do. Both of them are trying to be their own saviors. Both of them are trying to make their way in their life without God. They're trying to control God. And both groups need to repent. This is so important for us who consider ourselves Christians. Because if we do this, if we are only following God to get into heaven to fit in with a social group. If we're only going through the list and checking off the right things, I did my Bible study today, I did this, I did this, and not doing it out of love. Because of his love, we need to repent. We do. See, religious people obey God to get things. They think if I'm good enough, he's gonna supply for me. If I pray enough, he's going to Heal me of this sickness. It may happen. But they're thinking, if I do it, he's obligated. Right? Gospel people. Gospel people obey God to get God. They obey the Father to get the Father. Do you see the difference? But how do we become gospel people? How do we change our motivation? Because that's really at the key Of what we're talking about. It's why we do the things we do, not just the things that we actually do, but why. How do we change that? Well, we see that Jesus in this story shows us a radical view of salvation. The first thing we need is the love of the Father. We need to be completely amazed, bowled over, in awe of the love of the Father. That's the first step in becoming a gospel believer. We see this in the story. We need the love of the father. The love of the father makes the first move. Do you notice that? In this story with both sons. Let's look back again. Did you notice that when the father goes out to greet the son when he's coming off, he sees him in a distance, right? He comes up and he greets him. The, The son doesn't say anything yet. And what does the father do? He embraces him and he kisses him. He doesn't even wait for his repentance. He doesn't wait for his excuses or his plan that he had. The father makes the first move. I want to tell you this morning, he's made the first move with you. He loves you regardless of what you did or where you're going. And he's looking to come to you. He's not going to wait for you to come to him. But we have to respond to his love. The second point is I need to repent for doing things for the wrong reasons. Most people see the younger brother and think, okay, that's what I have to do, right? We talked about this. I have to repent of my list. I have to get everything off of my chest. But as we said, the older brother needs to repent as well. To truly understand the difference between being a good person and a Christian is that Christians ask for forgiveness for the things that we did for the wrong reasons this is extremely personal to me this is why this parable has spoken to me so much in my christian life i grew up in a christian family i accepted christ at a very very young age and i went through the motions for most of my life because i thought that that was the thing to do i'll I'll be granted i was i was scared of hell i'll be honest i didn't want to go to hell And yet, what I found in my life is that as I continued on, the things I was doing for God gave me no joy. Gave me no fulfillment. And I knew something was wrong. And it wasn't until I was presented with Jesus truly on a cross and understanding his real love for me, that I understood, you know what? Even if I don't get the good things in this life, I get Him. I get to know Him. I get to be known by Him. I get to have a personal relationship with the Creator of the universe. That's when things change for me. That's when it's okay if I'm in this job, if I don't necessarily like this job. But you know what? God has me there for a reason and I still get him. That's why if there's a death in the family or a struggle with money, I can go to a smaller house. I can deal with the pain of loss, even for somebody that I don't know if they're going to heaven or not. How? Why? I still get him. And that's enough. It has to be enough. Do you see how that changes the way you view every aspect of your life? every aspect. It changes everything because it's not about us anymore. It's about him and what he did for us. And that gets us to the third point. I need to see what it cost the father to bring me home. It cost him something. When the younger son came back and he accepted him, it cost him. He gave him his robe. Remember, he had already sold off the inheritance, right? He would have had to build that back up again. He would have had his social standing fall in that community because of what had happened. I mean, you think it's bad now with Facebook, right? And people, you know, spreading rumors or whatever. That's not just now, okay? That happened all the time. And that would have been the case back then, too. People would have looked at him and said, look at that father. He's the one that lost his son, squandered his living. It cost him something to bring him home. And in this, we see the picture of Jesus, who on the cross cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that's one of the only times that he refers to God and doesn't use Father? In fact, for Jesus in his time, um, a lot of the Pharisees believed that it was heretical for him to call God his Father. And yet time and time again, he called him my Father. But on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? Why didn't he call Him his father? Because at that moment, he was not his son. At that moment, he took on our sin, and he had to be separated from the father for the first time in eternity. Can you begin to imagine what that would cost? But he did it. He did it because he believes that you are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth that pain, that separation, because he wants to bring you home. To the extent that we understand this truth, it is the extent to which our lives are truly changed by the gospel. See, the gospel, that word, by the way, it means good news, okay? It's not some fancy word, it just means good news. And what that word actually means is it's used in, I, I actually have a uh, training in journalism. And so for me, in, in that time, it would have been like a news article. Something happened. In fact, they use it in the context of the original speakers as news of like a battle, right? Something had happened. Some big news happened. That's what the gospel is. It is an event that happened In history, in real history, that changes everything. It is not a set of rules that you have to follow. Do you understand that? He's not saying, okay, I've got this book together finally. You can get it, all right? If you follow every single thing in here. No, he's saying, I did something for you. I took the first step. And now it's your turn. Something happened in history that changed everything. In John 14, we get Thomas, who asked Jesus, he was talking about heaven and how to get to heaven, right? Most of us probably have heard this verse before, um, where he's talking about, you know, how do we get to heaven? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas said, well, how do we get there? How do we know the way? He's asking for a list of things that they can do. What does Jesus say? He says, do these things. No. No. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's found in a person. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. So where do you see yourself today? Because this applies to all of us, no matter where we are in our walk with God. Whether we're here uh, for the first time or we're watching online from who knows wherever across the world, wherever you're watching from or you're here with us, if you've had a relationship with Christ for your entire life or you've just now started to consider believing in him, we can see ourselves in these sons, can't we? Which son are you? Are you living your own life right now, just trying to figure things out on your own? You'll find that it's empty, I promise you you'll get a sense that there has to be something more to this life. But for those of us who are Christians, are we going through the motions? Have we really been captivated by his love in a way that transforms us? And if we haven't, we need to get into his word. We need to really read the gospels and really be transformed by his love. We have to repent of the good things that we are doing for the wrong reasons. Let's pray together, church. Father God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to share your parable that has been so life-changing to me, so convicting in my own life, that God, I can admit I was going through the motions. I was just doing things to get what I thought were the rewards that you could give, not realizing that you, God, are the ultimate reward knowing you, having peace in you, being accepted by you. It is a peace that truly surpasses all understanding. But I had to repent of my good deeds that I was doing for wrong reason. If there's those of us here today that are living that life, God, would you please convict our hearts? And for those of us who are far from God, those of us who feel like things are falling apart in our lives. We have nowhere else to turn. God, impress upon their hearts that you are running towards them. You're making the first move, God. And God is waiting for you to respond. Would you respond today? We thank you for this time, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you ultimately and most for your Son. In your name we do pray. Amen.